Chapter 10 of The Gladstone Colony, an unwritten chapter of Australian history, by James Francis Hogan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. A Marvellous Wild Goose Chase. The most graphic, entertaining, and trustworthy history of this phenomenal rush is one written by Mr. Frederick Sinnott an accomplished and versatile journalist who was dispatched to the scene by the proprietors of the Melbourne Argus as their special correspondent. He was a son of Mrs. Percy Sinnott, a once well-known and popular English authoress and translator. Mr. Sinnott describes the rush to Port Curtis as a marvellous wild goose chase, the most remarkable and distant rush recorded in the annals of the Australian goldfields. At that time, and indeed all through the 50s and the early 60s, the nomadic habits and unsettled condition of the great gold-digging class were frequently illustrated in new rushes. A rumour reached some centre of digging population that a rich deposit had been discovered, and immediately the more restless and dissatisfied diggers started off for the scene of the reported rich find. If the rumour proved groundless, the abortive rush was seldom heard of beyond its own immediate neighbourhood, but if the good news proved true, armies of diggers at once took the road from all directions for the new field. Along with the regular rank and file, as in the case of other armies, marched a body of camp followers, often even more numerous than the main force on which they depended. The active and energetic competition then pervading every kind of business in Australia was an assurance to the digger that, wherever he went, there would be very few consumers on the ground before purveyors for their various wants appeared in force. Under such circumstances, it only needed a few weeks to convert a solitary gully, in which the settlers' cattle had hitherto undisturbedly browsed, and which, except for the occasional visits of the stockmen, had not been seen by mortal eyes from one end of the month to the other, into a regularly organised town, with its mile or two of crowded streets, its stores and shops and public houses, its theatre and other places of amusement, its newspaper, and even its own little circumlocution office and governmental centre. One thing, indeed, commonly regarded as essential to towns, was not to be met with in those new rushes, viz. a house. Houses might come in the course of time, but they were regarded as of secondary importance, as refinements for which there was no immediate hurry, as much too fixed an investment to be ventured upon at once, 10,000 persons might flock to a place in the course of a few weeks, and a few weeks afterwards not as many hundreds might remain. Canvas is the best building material for a nomadic people, and the digging population of Victoria was not only nomadic, but nomadic in a sense of which the world had not previously had but few examples. Bedouins pitched their black tents in small groups. Tartars, wandering to find pasturage for their flocks and herds, do not crowd greatly together, but... The Victorian digger was a citizen as well as a nomad. He had many of the habits of the townsman, although as itinerant as a Tartar. And while he was as ready to strike his tent and march off to some distant spot as if he were a Pawnee on a hunting excursion, whither he moved the population that divided labour, the organisation of a town, and often a large one, quickly followed. The first rumour of discoveries of gold at Port Curtis reached Sydney in July, 1858. On the 25th of that month, the Jenny Lind arrived with the intelligence that rich goldfields had been discovered near Gladstone, 
but beyond that general announcement not much detailed information was procurable. On August the 24th, the coquette arrived at Sydney with specific news calculated to produce an impression on the public mind. Letters announcing the discovery of a first-rate goldfield near Port Curtis were delivered, and specimens of the auriferous wealth of the place were forwarded by way of a positive proof. So much interest did this news excite that the steamship Eagle was at once laid on for Port Curtis and left Sydney full of adventurers bound for the new rush. The Jenny Lind returned to Sydney a second time on September the 7th. She brought further accounts from the diggings together with 60 ounces of gold. Letters were published stating that the gold was found near the surface and that 21 pounds of the precious metal had already been raised. On September the 18th, the Uncle Tom arrived at Sydney from Port Curtis with the news that there were 400 men upon the diggings who were making from 6 to 7 pounds per week. An official dispatch from the government resident, Sir Morris O'Connell, dated September the 7th, communicated the stamp of authority to the private reports. Sir Morris stated that there were 300 persons on the spot, that there were individual instances of great success, that about 80 ounces of gold had been sent to Gladstone, and that it was desirable to officially proclaim the goldfield. Simultaneously with the publication of Sir Morris's dispatch, private letters from Port Curtis were printed to the effect that the news from the goldfield was astonishing, that one man had secured 22 ounces of gold in a week, that another had obtained a hundred pounds worth of gold in a fortnight, and many other reports to the same effect. The Sydney Morning Herald wrote, quote, We meet daily with persons who affirm that letters have been received privately containing facts of an astounding nature, but that self-interest induces their suppression for the moment. We can scarcely imagine that all these statements are false. Still, we have been very unsuccessful in tracing them to a reliable authority. In some instances, they have evidently been mere rumour, and probably the rumour has been due to sinister motives. At the same time, if the whole be founded on delusion or deception, its authors are entitled, at least, to the very doubtful credit of success. The effect produced has certainly been very marked, and even marvellous. Eighteen vessels have left during the past three weeks, and 1,580 passengers, from the 1st to the 20th of September, for the Port Curtis Goldfields. Twenty vessels, including steamers, are now advertising, some for the conveyance of passengers only, and others for the exclusive conveyance of goods. Quote ends. About the middle of September, the excitement produced by the reports from Port Curtis not only raged fiercely in New South Wales, but spread to the adjoining colony of Victoria. There the flame burned more and more fiercely every day. Not only did diggers troop down to Melbourne from all the Victorian goldfields, north, south, east and west, but appointments were thrown up and paying businesses abandoned by hundreds of men who were carried off their feet by the all-pervading excitement. Every dead wall in Melbourne and Geelong was covered with flaming placards announcing the immediate departure of ships and steamers for Port Curtis. The new El Dorado was obtruded upon public notice in multitudinous ways. Every shopkeeper found some article to display in his window, with a label recommending it, especially adapted to supply some pressing want of Port Curtis diggers. Every puffing advertiser used Port Curtis as his catchword. The press certainly did not stimulate the prevailing excitement, but all the attempts to check it which public writers made were quite unavailing. It was in vain that the risks to be run were urgently pointed out day after day. The excitement grew by what it fed on. No one could be brought to believe 
that everyone else was wildly acting upon the vaguest information. A could not believe that B and all the other letters of the alphabet were as mutable as himself. Almost every one of the multitude that joined in the rush was persuaded that so great an effect must have a proportionately great cause. When ships began to sail for Port Curtis with hundreds on board, sagacious reasoners far and near began to conclude that there must be something in it, and booked their passages at once, themselves to become arguments in favour of the departure of others. At the end of September, thirty vessels of all classes were laid on in Melbourne and Geelong for Port Curtis. Some enthusiasts even rigged out boats of five or six tons burden, and boldly set out on a voyage of fifteen hundred miles in such small and perilous craft, while steamers and large passenger ships carried their hundreds at a time. But in the midst of this large exodus of people, it was to be noticed that comparatively few merchants made ventures in goods. There were plenty of men ready to hazard their lives in a wild experiment, but men of business were not to be persuaded to risk their goods upon such slight information. So little was generally known about Port Curtis, indeed, that the most contradictory accounts of its climate were published in the newspapers, some alleging it to be a low, swampy region from which the hot tropical sun drew forth pestilential vapours amid which no European could labour and live. Mr. Sinnett felt a great curiosity to know what the truth about the Port Curtis goldfields really was, and he therefore resolved to go and see for himself. He proposed to the proprietors of the Melbourne Argus to visit the new rush, in the capacity of their special correspondent, and his offer was accepted. On the 2nd of October, he was ready to leave in the steamer Admella, lying at the Port Melbourne Pier. As he drove down to Port Melbourne, or Sandridge as it was then called, with a tent and other suggestive equipments protruding from the conveyance, he and his friends became objects of envy and attention. On that very day, one man had thrown up a good position, telling his employer that if he were to die for it fifty times, he must and would go, for he heard that a friend of his was getting five ounces of gold an hour. There was a belief in some quarters that poor Curtis was a New Guinea coast, but at once richer and more deadly than that fever-stricken storehouse of barbaric wealth. The Port Melbourne Pier was so thronged with spectators and friends of the passengers about to leave by the Admella that it was no easy matter to squeeze one's way on board, and even when there the crowding was scarcely lessened. Quantities of goods were in the process of loading, and passengers' luggage was being thrown in promiscuous heaps about the decks. The noise, dirt, and confusion were indescribable. The passengers were of all nations and tongues, but however all predominated the vocal jerks and drawls peculiar to the utterance of Brother Jonathan, for, needless to say, the percentage of Yankees was considerable in the case of such a speculative proceeding as the Port Curtis Rush, and equally, of course, the proportion of friends that came down to take one last long lingering liquor with each adventurous old hoss was prodigious. When, late in the afternoon, the warps were cast off the jetty, it was densely crowded by shouting and cheering friends and spectators, and amid hurrahs and hat-waving, and the strains of a brass band concealed somewhere in the mass of people, the Admella stood out into the bay. About a mile off she came to a standstill while the immigration officer came on board, and while some attempts were made to evolve order out of chaos, after the encumbering swarm of visitors had been got rid of. The task was no easy one, for the vessel had far more passengers than she was entitled to carry. The unfortunate agent, who had made himself conspicuous by mounting a magnificent crimson fez, 
was incessantly assailed by relays of murmuring, menacing, or reproachful steerage passengers who could not find berths. Nevertheless, all the offers of the agent to return the passage money and set the complaining ones ashore were received with derision. So determined were the people to go, so convinced were they of the fortune that only needed to be picked up a week from that time, that they would have stowed themselves away in the cross-trees rather than lose a day. Boats full of men that could not go came alongside to look with envious eyes on those who could. One old waterman, who had brought a passenger on board, and who stood balancing himself in the bows of the boat, holding on by the rope's end that had been cast to him, observed with an evident sincerity that would probably not have gratified the absent lady, quote, Ah, if they'd only host my boat aboard, and take me and she together, I wouldn't so much as ask to go and say good-bye to my old woman. End quote. Next morning, Mr. Sinnett was confirmed in an impression that he had formed the previous afternoon, that the Edmela was not a very carefully or well-governed ship. When he went on deck, he found it still lumbered up with goods, while the ordinary nautical observance of washing decks appeared to be altogether disregarded. There was no room for walking, the quarter-boats being swung in over the poop, although the weather was beautifully fine and the sea smooth. A good deal of room was also taken up by a small steamer, which was being conveyed to Port Curtis as a speculation. Its stern overhung one side of the Edmella, and its stem the other, so that it had to be passed under with crouching contortions of the body if one wanted to go forward. A quantity of bags of coal also encumbered the decks, and had been trodden by hundreds of feet until the bags had burst. There was scarcely an inch of clear deck to stand upon. Below in the steerage, owing to the berthing provision being inadequate to the number of passengers, the clamour of complaint was loud and general. After surmounting a variety of difficulties, and having once been in imminent danger of going on the rocks, the Admala entered the port of Newcastle, about halfway between Melbourne and Port Curtis. There, reports the reverse of rose-coloured about the new rush were in circulation. Some of the passengers were so discouraged that they sold their ten-pound passenger tickets for ten shillings. One man was so disgusted that he lighted his pipe with his ticket and booked his passage back to Melbourne. Nevertheless, for one that wanted to return, there were many anxious to proceed. Each vacated berth was readily filled up at Newcastle, while many applicants for passages had to be left behind. Port Curtis within five days was the alluring advertisement placarded in Melbourne in connection with the departure of the Admala, but as a matter of fact the voyage covered a period of ten days. Every night the floor of the saloon was occupied by sleepers who could find no berths or room in the steerage. As the Admala steamed into harbour, hundreds of hands, says Mr. Sinnott, along the bulwarks of a large ship at anchor, waved us away, while amidst a hurricane of voices clearly rose the ominous words, Go back! Go back! Scheisser! Scheisser! This latter expression is Digger's slang for an unsuccessful quest of the precious metal. But the pilot and visitors from the shore gave much more sanguine accounts of the new rush, and pointed out the absurdity of attaching any importance to the impressions of people who were frightened back from the threshold of the place they had come so far, and with such high hopes, to reach. Proceeding up the Fitzroy River, quote, a noble river running through a noble country, end quote, Mr. Sinnott arrived on a Sunday evening at the scene of the rush. Quote, it was already dark, he writes, but by the light of the moon we saw the tents of the diggers standing in considerable numbers, and presenting all the outward appearance of a Victorian goldfield. The tent in which I was to pass the night was at the far end of the diggings, so that we had a fair view of the transitionary canvas town as we went along. 
Everything looked cheerful enough. The fires were burning brightly, and the men were moving about, talking and laughing, and enjoying their after-Sunday supper pipes. There were a good many women to be seen too, but I cannot say that they added much to the pleasant appearance of the scene. A digging's rush is certainly not a woman's sphere. Mr. Sinnett's slumbers during his first night on the Port Curtis goldfield were repeatedly broken by a party of Shakespearean inebriated revellers in an adjoining tent. Macbeth was their favourite tragedy, and, and the still night air rang with peculiarly impassioned passages, interrupted by occasional notes and parentheses, not to be found in the authorised edition, such as, quote, Before my body I throw my warlike shield, lay on Macduff, and damned be he that fust cries, old enough, and is the panican old man, End quote. Next morning, Mr. Sinnott was out early amongst the tents and washing-places. He found the Canoona flat, on which the diggers were mostly congregated, covering an area of forty or fifty acres, surrounded on three sides by lightly timbered slopes with a mountainous background. Down the middle of the flat ran a small creek, whose banks constituted the chief scene of activity. Here many wells, whips, windlasses, cranes, and washing-dishes were busily engaged. In answer to questions, the diggers replied that any man could make his rations on the field, and some were making a good deal more. After breakfast, Mr. Sinnott paid a visit to the government camp, where he made the acquaintance of Sir Maurice O'Connell, who had just come in from a tour of inspection, and was about returning to his headquarters at Gladstone. Sir Maurice expressed a very hopeful view of the auriferous prospects of the district, although he was somewhat alarmed at the possible consequences of the extensive rush that had set in, a rush for which the old residents of the district were altogether unprepared and utterly unable to account. Sir Maurice estimated the quantity of gold so far produced as about 2,000 ounces, and he showed Mr. Sinnott a parcel of 20 ounces that had been placed in his charge that morning. As a proof of the general dissemination of gold in the district, Sir Maurice also exhibited a paper containing specimens collected by a black boy attached to the government camp, who was persuaded to go off and imitate the white men's proceedings with a tin dish. Sir Maurice, speaking particularly of Gladstone, where he had long resided, gave a very favourable account of the climate. The heat was rarely excessive, and the nights were almost invariably cool and pleasant. A great advantage enjoyed by this portion of Australia was almost complete freedom from hot winds. At spots called Chinaman's Gully and Golden Point, which had proved the richest parts of the field, Mr. Sinnott found a good many diggers at work, but they were only gleaners after the harvest. The great yield of gold was in a thin stratum of soil, rarely above a foot deep, overlaying the bedrock. A number of gleaners were at work scraping away the remaining earth from the surface of the rock, and thereby obtaining a modest livelihood. Many others were trying their luck in places where the soil, if less rich, was more readily secured. The man who gave the best account of what he was earning on the new ground reported that he was getting half an ounce of gold to the load. All over the goldfield, unlicensed grog-selling was undisguisedly carried on. Quote, Talking of hotels and unlicensed victuallers, Mr. Sinnott observes, I should mention that there are no licensed ones. Bottles and glasses stand openly on almost every store counter in the place. The law does not wink at this sly grog-selling. It looks at it with calm, unaverted eyes, and it is generally understood that until due notice has been given, and the machinery for issuing licenses is complete, there will be no restriction upon the sale of alcoholic drinks. End quote. Mr. Sinnott does not think there was any appreciable increase of drunkenness from this indiscriminate and unchecked sale of intoxicants. In such a heterogeneous and suddenly collected community, 
a large amount of drunkenness was inevitable. But the evil would have been augmented if the drinkers had been concentrated in a few crowded, licensed establishments. Incessant quarrelling and fighting would have been the rule, and the pernicious biblious rivalry that the practice of shouting, or calling upon all present to drink at the caller's expense, engenders, would have come into the fullest operation. But the unlicensed grog-selling storekeepers only satisfied a more moderate and unstimulated demand for liquor amongst their general customers, and would not permit their places to become scenes of drunken and riotous clamour. Every goldfield has its distinctive humours and its peculiar catchword. The latter at Port Curtis Rush was composed of the affectionate phrase, Oh, dearest Emma. Just after dark, somebody would shout this amatory ejaculation at the top of his voice, and immediately the cry would be taken up and repeated all over the field in varying tone of mock admiration. At first, Mr. Sennett was under the impression that Emma was an actual flesh-and-blood personage, running the gauntlet of playful pleasantries from the gay young diggers, but he soon discovered that Emma existed only in the realms of local imagination. It was simply an inexplicable but an established right of the Port Curtis diggers to shout, Oh, dearest Emma, from time to time, at the highest pitch of the voice. Occasionally the cry was raised during the day, but the practice was an essentially nocturnal one, lasting from seven o'clock until midnight, and attaining its maximum between nine and ten. Now and then a digger would vary the entertainment by adding to, Oh, dearest Emma, ow my aches but the majority contented themselves with merely apostrophizing Emma. Sometimes, if tolerable quiet had reigned for half an hour, she would suddenly be addressed with startling vehemence, and the cry would then be passed on from voice to voice until the farthest passionate appeal could be barely heard. Just as one dog beginning to bark, or one cock commencing to crow rouses all the dogs or cocks within hearing, and sends the signal along a line of sentries for many miles, until the last answer seems but a faint and distant echo, so was it with the shouts of, Oh, dearest Emma, and How my heart aches, at the Port Curtis rush. Mr. Sinnott returned to Melbourne, under the impression that when the Port Curtis district was thoroughly prospected, important discoveries would be made. Quote, it certainly seems to me improbable, he wrote, that in a country where gold is found in minute quantities, almost wherever sought over a large area, it should turn out that the little patch near Canoona was the only rich spot extant. If I may venture to give any general opinion about this place, it is that it will not turn out to be a shicer so far as gold digging is concerned, while that it is a fine field for colonisation in other respects, I have little doubt. End, quote. End of chapter 10 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.